Through COVID, Canadian banks really shored up their capital ratios in expectations of the worst when COVID lockdowns first happened. That worst case scenario didn't really play out. And so that really left the Canadian banks in a very strong position. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. RBC's blockbuster bid for HSBC, the country's seventh largest lender, has capped a wave of Canadian bank M&A. In today's episode, portfolio managers Vishal Badia, Chris McKinney, and your host, Mackenzie Box, dive into the growth potential these deals hold for the banks. They also discuss how to position portfolios amid a steepening yield curve inversion and possible end to China's zero-COVID policy. Finally, where to find value among tech's discounted megacaps. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the new and improved Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Good morning, and welcome to our BMO ETFs weekly insight podcast with our team of experts. I'm today's host, Mackenzie Fox, VP of Product and Strategy at BMO Global Asset Management. First off, I just want to thank everyone for taking the time to tune in. We greatly appreciate you listening in and providing your feedback each week. Today, I'm joined by Chris McKinney and Vishal Badia who are both portfolio managers at our ETF desk. So thanks, Chris and Vish, for joining us today. Thanks. Good morning. Thank you, Mackenzie. So let's get into it. The first question today is focused around the yield curve. So the yield curve in Canada is continuing to invert. And we've recently seen the full yield curve invert in the U.S. as well. What are the historical implications on an inverted yield curve and how best to position for this. Chris, can we pass this one to you? Sure, I can take that. We did see back in July, the first sort of indication of a yield curve inversion in, in both the US and Canada, when the two-year yield went above the 10-year yield again in both markets. And so that's the first indication of a yield curve inversion and really is kind of a warning signal from the bond market as to a, a potential future slowdown. You know, obviously it makes sense if two-year yields are higher than 10-year yields, the market is pricing in rate cuts at some point beyond those two years uh, to some degree. And so typically rate cuts associated with a slowing economy um, that needs some element of stimulus added to it. And so again, that's what we saw first in July, that first level of inversion um, and then more recently, uh, in Canada in August, but in the U.S., this really just happened at the end of October, we saw the full yield curve inversion, uh, which implies the three-month yield being higher than the 10-year yield. And so this is really a, a more dire warning from the fixed income market, and typically is associated with a recession uh, at some point in the future. You know, every time we've seen that three-month, 10-year yield inversion happen, uh, we have seen a recession at some point in the future. Of course, the main question is the timing of that. That could be six months from now. It could be 12 months from now. Um, and of course, when it comes to recessions, you know, we typically don't know we were in a recession until after it happened, this particularly if you take a look at you know, the technical definition of two 
uh, continuous quarters of negative GDP growth. Well, of course, you don't know that measurement until after that second quarter is already done to some degree. And so therefore, you never really know you're in a recession until at least six months into it. So timing wise, that's kind of the the question um, that's still out there. What's really notable, though, about this full yield curve inversion that we're seeing right now, um, this three month to 10 year relationship is that it's the most negative it's been since at least 2001 in the US, potentially even further back uh, in Canada, going back to the 90s, potentially. And so it's not just that, you know, the three month yield slightly went higher than the 10 year yield for a day or two. Um, this is a trend that's continuing and continuing to get more negative. You know, right now we're seeing in the U.S. it's about a 60 basis point differential. So three-month yields are 60 basis points higher than 10-year yields. And in Canada, that inversion is even stronger. It's about 97 basis points right now. So a significantly higher short-term yield than we're seeing uh, in, the, in that 10-year maturity bucket. And so really, because of the depth of this yield curve inversion, that's a pretty strong conviction from the fixed income market that, you know, if we're not going to get a recession, we're at least going to get a significant uh, slowdown in the not too distant future. So, again, the risk of this is timing. You know, when would that recession start and when do I start to position for it as an investor or as an advisor? Well, the first thing we need to do is look at you know, typically in a recession or entering into a recession, what sort of assets do well. And. Traditionally, this has been long-term bonds, long-term government bonds, you know, entering in a recession or, or getting close to a recession. And then throughout the first part of a recession, it is those longer-term bonds that tend to do well. So take a look at things like the BMO Long Federal Bond Index ETF, ticker is ZFL, that's Canadian-issued uh, long-term bonds. Or if you want to look at U.S. Treasuries, uh, the BMO Long-Term U.S. Treasury Bond Index ETF ticker is ZTL or ZTL.F if you want the hedge to CAD version. These are the type of assets I think investors really need to start looking at um, as a potential addition to their fixed income portfolio. Now, um, I wouldn't blame anyone for being a little bit nervous with the year that we've had uh, in 2022. I wouldn't blame anyone to be a little bit nervous into moving into these assets. They've actually underperformed very significantly. Long-term bonds have uh, here in 2022 with the with the rate moves that we have seen. Um, but I think something that's important to take a look at is the more recent action in the long end of the curve. Um, you know, even with the most recent uh, reports we've got out of the Federal Reserve, the interest rate hike and um, movements in interest rates, what we've seen over the last month or so, or, or few weeks at least, is that even as short-term yields continue to rise, and they're up about 50 basis points in the U.S. over the last couple of weeks here in November, um, the long-term yields, and this is you know, 5, 10 years out and further, have all come down. So this is a signal that the market it believes the U.S. and Canada central banks will get inflation under control at some point. And the bigger risk now and the bigger concern is that long-term growth. You know, at what um, cost is this inflation going to be um, going to be tackled? And so uh, again, that's still a question to be determined. So we have told investors throughout this year, stay nice and short in your duration. You know, things like the ultra short, the BMO ultra short term bond ETF ticker ZST has done very well for investors and is actually earning a very decent yield right now with those short term rates as high as they are. Um, and so we think that's still a safe place to be, a good place to be for investors, but increasingly as we start to move forward, starting to move at least a piece of that position into one of those longer term 
bond ETFs, we think is going to start to make sense. And maybe you're a little early if you make that trade right now um, and might have to wait out a little bit of continued volatility. But if you step into this type of trade over time, it should be well positioned for any uh, slowdown that we do face uh, in the near future, whether that's 2023 first half or, or second half or, or even beyond. Um, and so that's kind of what we're looking at. Uh, again, you know, investors might not want to do that right away. They might not want to do that full switch from short to long. Um, and we think that makes sense. But over time, increasingly using that sort of barbell between that ultra short and that long term bond is going to make sense for a lot of investors. Great. Thanks, Chris, for that update. Does market volatility have you wondering where to go to ride out the storm? Not all cash equivalents are created equal, and BMO's money market and ultra-short-term bond ETFs offer several high-quality options to park client cash. To learn more, visit bmoetfs.ca and search for tickers ZMMK, ZST, and ZUS, or read our latest product insights. Our second question today, we're going to pass this one to you, Vish. China's iPhone City recently lifted its lockdown after growing riots. Is this the beginning of the end of China's zero COVID strategy? What's the impact of our ticker ZCH BMO's MSCI China ESG Leaders Index ETF? Okay, thanks, Mackenzie. Well, you know, it's certainly been quite a month for Chinese equities uh, marked by social unrest in, in China, like seen in, in that iPhone city that you mentioned, uh, Shangzhou where you know, they had uh, violent riots erupt at the Foxconn factory, uh, which is, as you may know, uh, responsible for about 70% of Apple's global production. So that uh, you know, caused a lot of eyeballs to focus on what was happening uh, over there. But despite uh, that, there have been other developments as well, uh, which allowed Chinese equities to realize perhaps the largest monthly increase since data collection began back in 2001 with the MSCI China uh, index up about 26% month to date, so just November so far. Now, granted, you know, prior to November, the market, uh, the Chinese market was down in the range of 38% in Canadian dollars, you know, to the end of October. So, you know, starting from a very low base, of course. Of course, uh, you know, one of the key drivers for the horrible performance in China prior to the action we've seen this month, it's related to the stringent COVID zero policy uh, and you know widespread lockdowns across the country, which have dramatically slowed down economic activity in the country. But you know, given events in the last few weeks, uh, you know, investors have become increasingly optimistic that perhaps we're witnessing the beginning of the end for the uh, you know really uh, strict COVID zero policy. And one of the reasons uh, for that shift in sentiment is is that the Chinese government has recently pivoted its containment policy. Uh, actually back on November 11th, when they shifted the focus away from the really draconian zero tolerance approach uh, and shifted towards uh, focus on flattening the curve and you know strengthening medical resources, all of which should prepare the country for an eventual reopening. And so investors have definitely uh, you know jumped on board and seized uh, these developments as a sign that the, it could be the beginning of the end of the strict COVID zero policy. Uh, and since November 11th, just this past Tuesday, in fact, Beijing uh, you know, came up with some more concrete terms and promised to expedite COVID shots for the elderly and have called for an increase in ICU capacity in proportion to the size of the local population. So those are definitely, you know, positive developments uh, for a China reopening scenario, but the path towards reopening will 
likely be you know, somewhat bumpy. After all, we're dealing with the you know pandemic, and Omicron's high transmissibility rate uh, could you know uh, change the the path somewhat. It may not be a you know, path direct to opening. It could be up and down a bit. And it's because the vaccination rate in China among the vulnerable elderly uh, remains you know, quite low. And and the designated medical resources that that the Beijing is talking about, they haven't really been fully ramped up or implemented, and they're a little bit unevenly distributed across the country. So, you know, in the interim period, if there's minimal intervention, there could be periods where the case counts surge exponentially and potentially overwhelm the healthcare system, just as we witnessed, you know, in many areas of North America in, in the last uh, couple of years during COVID. Uh, other factors that have boosted investor sentiment and are perhaps behind some of the increase that we've seen in the markets uh, as of late is that there have been some positive reports from e-commerce companies like Pinduoduo and a couple of other major internet companies posting much better than expected profit reports. So that's certainly been helpful as well to the to the big picture there in China. Uh, as for you know uh, the reopening and uh, the likely effects, uh, I think uh, it should you know be a positive contributor. Uh, when uh, they reduce these 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 lockdowns to domestic demand, uh, it should lift overall, you know, not only Chinese GDP but substantially impact Asian uh, overall GDP growth. Uh, so we see that you know being a substantial contributor uh, to flip it, uh, you know, it, rising back towards levels last seen back in 2017, 2018. So that's very positive as well. Uh, you know, re- reducing these these lockdowns and should have a, a like a modest upward pressure on energy prices, uh, demand driven largely. So, commodities like uh, oil and uh, liquid uh, natural gas and iron ore and so on have been seeing a bit of a boost, and part of that may be attributable to this anticipated demand increase coming out of the uh, assumed uh, you know reopening. And you know, I think as we all know, China's you know the world's you know factory, so to speak. Uh, China's reopening should minimize or reduce the supply chain disruptions which have been so prevalent uh, globally and you know China's the supplier of about 15% of the world's uh, good exports and so it's uh, by far the single largest critical role in global supply chains and that should really uh, you know help uh, reduce inflation as well you know, uh, in terms of core goods in the US as well since uh, it's a central piece of uh, our supply chain in North America for that for that matter uh, as it's a main source for consumer good imports into the U.S. and uh, it's part of the global auto supply chain, it plays a key role as well. And so, to the to the degree that uh, it reopens, this should uh, exert a bit of a disinflationary impact in the market. And so, as for how one gets focused exposure to the China reopening theme uh, and potentially take advantage of historically low valuations and as well benefit from the uh, uh, environmental, social, and governance screening uh, to you know, identify the best-in-class uh, companies in, in all of the various sectors. Uh, that can be done via ZCH, the uh, ESG China ESG Leaders Fund. Uh, that's for focused exposure on China. And more broadly, uh, you know, emerging markets exposure via ZEM, the BMO MSCI Emerging Markets Index ETF, offers substantial exposure to China as well, but with the added... Uh, diversification benefit of uh, many other emerging markets, many of which will or should uh, also be beneficiaries of an eventual China reopening. And considering as well that the valuations for EM are also at the lower end of the historical range, then, you know, that uh, might prompt some to, to, you know, add to positions in either ZCH or ZEM. 
Great. Thanks, Vish, for that update. I think everyone's hoping that those uh, supply disruptions do start to level out in the next little bit. Our next question, we'll send this over to you, Chris. RBC has recently agreed to buy HSBC's Canadian business for $10 billion USD. As well, the Canadian bank earnings have begun to trickle in. And what are the early reports looking like? And how does the sector respond to this large transaction? Thanks, Mackenzie. And yeah, certainly some big news as RBC um, announced that deal that they're expected to close with HSBC to buy their Canadian operations. Um, And this really continues a trend that we've seen with Canadian banks deploying their excess capital um, to acquisitions in order to fund future growth potential. Uh, Of course, Bank of Montreal um, themselves have announced a deal to buy Bank of the West. Uh, Their footprint is primarily the U.S. West Coast um, and TD as well, buying a a U.S. bank First Horizon, uh, their footprint primarily the U.S. Southeast. So, you know, similar deals here, of course, BMO and TD uh, expanding in the U.S., uh, whereas uh, RBC expanding here uh, in Canada. But a similar uh, tone to those deals, again, using the excess capital that these banks have built up over the last couple of years and using it to fund acquisitions in order to propel future growth. If we take a look at the HSBC deal, um, RBC said that um, you know, they're expected to add about 5 to 7% uh, to growth almost immediately. Once the deal does close, it'll take some time for that deal to close. Um, but kind of a 5 to 7% addition to growth. And for that, they paid about a 9.4 multiple uh, to 2024's expected earnings. Of course, this is all um, expectations right now based on future earnings. If we take a look at um, you know those other two deals as well, again, slightly different, You know, one being um, expansion in Canada, the other two being expansion in the US. Um, you know, BMO paid a, a little bit of a higher multiple, about 10.7, to acquire Bank of the West, but they also see uh, more growth potential coming out of that, about 10% uh, earnings growth um, based on 2024's expected earnings. So a little bit higher growth profile and therefore a higher multiple paid for it. Um, And then TD really kind of in between the two, um, you know, kind of a a multiple really about 9.8. So in between the BMO and and, uh, RBC deals um, and the growth potential a little bit lower uh, as well, about four to 5% growth is expected there. So um, again, really what we're seeing through COVID, you know, Canadian banks really shored up their capital ratios um, in expectations of the worst when COVID lockdowns first happened. Um, That worst case scenario didn't really play out. And so that really left the Canadian banks in a very strong position uh, with their tier one capital ratios, you know, far exceeding uh, minimum requirements uh, that are set out by the regulators. Um, and so this is just a trend that we're going to, you know, maybe continue to see as uh, maybe some of the other banks in Canada look to uh, deploy that uh, additional capital as well. In terms of how um, earnings have played out so far, um, you know, we really haven't seen all the banks announced yet. So it is kind of a mixed bag so far. Um, RBC recently came out with, I would say, fairly decent earnings. So a little bit positive there. Some of the other banks that have announced so far um, a little bit more mixed. Um, and so I think really what we're seeing is um, mixed results because of different contributions to operations. And really, you know, what this means is it's actually a positive um, as long as we don't see any really, really negative earnings results because expectations coming into this earnings cycle were actually very low. If you take a look at the price action 
uh, in the banks, in the Canadian banks, relative to the rest of the Canadian market. You know, just taking a look at what we've seen over 2022 coming off of their highs, you know, the average big six Canadian bank is about 15% below uh, their 52-week high. So it's sold off, you know, 15% on average uh, relative to their highest point over the last year. If you compare that to the rest of the TSX composite, the rest, you know, the major index in Canada, um, that's only off about 8%. Uh, from its recent high. And so, you know, banks essentially selling off twice as much um, as the Canadian market has uh, over the last year or so. In addition, when you just look at valuations, if you take a look at PEs, um, Canadian banks on average, right around that 10 number, 10.1, let's call it on the PE ratio with the rest of the TSX trading at 13 and a half. So from a valuation perspective, banks actually set up very well here. Um, again, relative to the rest of the market, um, simply because expectations coming into this earnings season have been pretty low. And so a mixed result, I think, is actually a pretty good thing here. Um, and so for investors that you know want to play that rebound in Canadian banks, like that valuation here, um, by the way, also a 4.5% dividend yield. So even if you get no growth, you're getting a 4.5% dividend with a favorable tax treatment there. Um, you know, ZEB is always the preferred vehicle of choice that we tell investors, the BMO Equal Weight Banks Index ETF uh, for investors that want that um, cheap, quick exposure uh, to the Canadian banking sector with the potential for uh, that upside uh, reversion. And for investors that think, OK, well, Canadian banks, yeah, sure, they're they're cheap relative to the rest of the Canadian market, but I don't see much growth here. Um, you know, we always tell investors as well. Another option is. Uh, the BMO Covered Call Banks ETF, a Canadian Banks ETF, that's ticker ZWB, um, that has that covered call overlay on top of it, still holds, holds those same six Canadian banks, but has that covered call overlay on top of it, uh, which essentially increases the current income coming out of the portfolio by trading away some of that future growth potential. So if you don't think there's a lot of that future growth potential, makes sense to maybe get paid to wait for that growth to return with that covered call overlay. So ZEB, again, we think looking very attractive here. In fact, um, our own Alfred Lee put out a trade idea very recently. It's on the ETF dashboard right now, detailing a lot of this uh, that we've been talking about with the Canadian banks and why it sets up for a great investment right now. Great. Thanks, Chris. And thanks for that update. And lots of good resources on the ETF dashboard as well. Ready for tax time? Check out the BMO ETF's Tax Loss Harvesting Guide for 2022, which features trade ideas to help your clients navigate the year's end and harvest tax savings from underperforming securities. To learn the advantages, potential pitfalls, and best practices, access BMO ETF's Tax Loss Harvesting Guide today at bmoetfs.ca. Our last question for today is focused around the tech mega caps. So they continue to weigh on markets and we see them dominate headlines. What is the impact of this on ZGQ, BMO MSCI, All Country World, High Quality Index ETF? Vish, we'll pass this one over to you. Thanks, Mackenzie. Yeah, that's right. Certainly many of the tech stock behemoths, the so-called fangs and others uh, like Meta, Netflix, Amazon and the like, they saw valuations reach record highs throughout much of the pandemic and reaching their peak generally around the end of 2021. But this year has seen them taking a big hit with interest rates rising at a record pace and soaring inflation and a strong US dollar. And that hasn't uh, really been kind to longer duration technology stocks. 
uh, you know, higher rates and the higher borrowing costs that follow, they tend to hit big tech companies disproportionately with the FANG stocks in general having lost an average of, of about 40% year to date. So if you think about why that is effectively uh, the Fed with its aggressive rate hike campaign has effectively switched many investors' focus from you know, innovation and, and future plays somewhat to conservation mode and preservation of capital. And until they pull the lever back to innovation via eventual rate cuts, the persistently high rate environment that we're in is likelier to favor stability over uh, you know, long duration uh, type uh, growth plays and near-term or current profitability over future profitability. And so you know, that kind of focus is exactly what our quality ETFs like ZGQ, our global uh, quality ETF, are designed to invest in. We also offer uh, quality strategies focused on Europe uh, and the US uh, equity market as well. But as for what defines a, a quality company, you know, we think companies with durable business models and sustainable competitive advantages or, or economic moats, they're best positioned uh, for growth or at least uh, relative preservation in this environment as far as equities are concerned. And quality growth companies, they tend to have a high return on equity and stable earnings that are broadly uncorrelated with the broad business cycle, almost like utility-like, uh, and, and strong balance sheets with low financial leverage. So they're better able to deal with the high interest rate environment uh, that, we, that we find ourselves uh, in. And so that's what the global quality strategy focuses on which is to say systematically investing across the globe, including emerging markets, in equities that have high quality scores as measured by a combination of a couple of key uh, quality metrics, including high return on equity, uh, low debt to equity, and low earnings variability or low volatility for, for earnings. So, you know, of course, technology stocks have in general taken a drubbing this year and no strategy investing in the sector is immune to the market forces that have punished the space and reduced the valuation multiples according to the sector. And that includes you know, uh, even quality strategies. They do maintain substantial technology positions. However, uh, keep in mind that the names that they invest in are ones that rank the highest on the various quality metrics that I mentioned, which, which means that the tech companies that we hold on balance should perform relatively better in this type of environment than lower quality names. Uh, and so, you know, to give you a sense, top overweights in the technology sector relative to the MSCI ACWI for the uh, ZGQ global quality strategy include NVIDIA, Texas Instruments, Microsoft, uh, and Cisco. So they maintain uh, material positions in technology as well as all, you know, all sectors, but uh, keeping in mind that they are all subject to screening to ensure that, uh, that they score very well on a variety of quality metrics so that you get diversified exposure uh, to a quality tilted equity uh, portfolio. And we believe that this type of exposure is sort of ideally suited for the market uh, cycle that we're in, a low growth, high inflation environment. Great. Thanks, Vish. Now that concludes all the questions that we have for this week. So I just want to thank everyone for listening in and a special thank you to both Chris and Vish for providing some great insights in these uncertain markets. So I just want to thank everyone and wish you all a great day. Thanks. Thank you to Mackenzie Box, Vishal Badia, and Chris McKinney for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about the BMO MSCI Emerging Markets Index ETF, ticker ZEM, which gives investors substantial exposure to China with the added diversification benefit of other emerging markets. Our experts also discussed Canadian banks' growth prospects following a wave of acquisitions, 
The BMO Equal Weight Banks Index ETF, ticker ZEB, provides efficient exposure to the country's big six lenders. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the new and improved Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Commissions, management fees, and expenses, if any, all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus before investing. Exchange-traded funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. BMO Global Asset Management is a brand name under which BMO Asset Management Inc. and BMO Investments Inc. operate.